Hello and welcome. You've tuned into the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. He has years of experience as a pastor, seminary instructor, and more. Later, you will be given information how to reach us. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me over to Exodus chapter 1. The book of Exodus, Shemot, and it's really coming from the very first words of the book. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. And that's what the name Shemot means. These are the names. And that's exactly how we get the in the first five books, that's how they are named in the Hebrew Bible, by the first line, such as we saw last week with Genesis, Breshit, in the beginning, because those are the first words. Well, who wrote this book? Well, we know that God used Moses to write this book. And even though the book of Exodus talks about his birth, the miraculous uh, uh, incidents, how God watched over and superintended and allowed Moses to be taken by Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, nevertheless, God used Moses. He inspired him to write this book, just as we saw that he did to write the book of Genesis. Well, this most likely took place. The people would see it, and they understood that Moses, and they read this while they were on the Exodus. So most likely it occurred somewhere around 1430 BC. Well, the Greek word Exodus means a going out. We get our word Exodus from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's the name because it is a going out. And that's what Exodus means. This, of course, really understates the, the marvelous, miraculous works of God on behalf of his chosen people. Because not only did God miraculously deliver his people from slavery, but he continued to fulfill the promises that he had made to the patriarchs, and his presence is evident in this nation all uh, apart from any other nation. God has just watched over Israel in such a, a very special way. That's called the great escape. That's why I've entitled it today in your notes. That's what you'll see because in the Exodus, God saves his people. He gives them the 10 commandments. We're going to find the giving of the tabernacle. We're going to find God doing miraculous and wonderful things. But there are some key people in Exodus God let himself be known. And that's how we understand and we have great understanding about God. But we know that some of the key people are, of course, Moses. 
Moses is the author of this book. He's God's servant. He was used to free God's people from slavery. I hope you remember the story how as a young man he had been raised up in Pharaoh's household, but he sees an Egyptian uh, beating uh, an Israelite, and he comes to that aid, and he kills the Egyptian. So rather than face a charge of manslaughter, he flees unto Midian. And there, of course, it's as he meets uh, Zipporah, his wife. By the way, that means little bird. Zipporah was a little bird. Midian, and by the way, the Midianites, if you remember, Midian was the sixth son of Abraham from Keturah. After Sarah was born, uh, excuse me, after Sarah died, Abraham marries Keturah. And he has a number of sons, and his sixth son is Midian. And so Moses flees, and he goes to, comes across Jethro, who is a Midianite. So he's come from that land of, Ab of Abraham. Well, Moses is used, of course, and he meets God at a fiery bush. He sees a bush that's on fire and yet is not consumed. And we're going to talk about that and what God said. We're going to see Miriam. Miriam is the older sister. We find her very early in the book where she is watching over the child that was placed into a basket. And as Pharaoh's daughter comes and the entourage and finds the baby, Miriam rushes and says, I will get you a, a Hebrew nurse. Well, so Pharaoh's daughter is also the rescuer in this. Then we have Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law, a Midianite priest. We have Aaron, who is Moses' brother, and he becomes the very first high priest. And of course, we have Pharaoh. The Pharaoh we're going to be looking at primarily here, they believe is very possibly Amenhotep II. That is the Pharaoh whose heart is hardened and he will not let Israel go. And then of course, we have Joshua that's introduced on the scene. And Joshua is Moses' assistant. And then of course, Joshua, one of the 12 spies that goes into the land. And only he and Caleb come back with a faithful, faithful message of what God could do in spying out the land. So we recognize and we learn about Joshua here. Well, there are some key doctrines as well that we're going to see. And we see that we understand much about the nature of God, the covenant promises that God is faithful just as he promised Abraham and just as he promised Isaac and Jacob and Joseph that he was going to fulfill these great promises and give them a promised land. We see that being fulfilled. They weren't going to stay slaves in Egypt. Well, we see also the giving of the Ten Commandments. These basic truths of God are all meant to lead us to Christ. That's why the New Testament says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And of course, it teaches us of evil and of Satan. We learn about Satan as a result, that Satan is in the business of religion. We're going to study that a little bit more. But we learn first also 
that God is accessible, that God was a God at hand, a God for the Hebrews, that God is glorious, that God was good, that God is gracious, that God is holy, that God is long-suffering, and that God is merciful. So we see all of these things as well as God being all-powerful, God being, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> God being able to provide, sorry, I get going, try and go too fast, and, uh, but God being able to provide, he is a provident leader and provident and, and true in all of those. God is true. God is unequaled, and that's what we see in the first chapters as uh, the sorcerers and Moses kind of do battle with one another. God is certainly unequaled in all of that. And of course, God is wise. He knows the hearts of man. But God is also wrathful for those that will not turn, for those that will not hear. God is a God of wrath that those that won't listen to his word how, what a shame. What a, what a terrible place that is. Well, we see as well that God destroys the false gods. Every one of the ten plagues that we have in this book, each was aimed at an Egyptian god. They had the Lord of the Flies, and of course you know the plagues of the flies. You know, they had the, uh, the, the god that was... Half human and half frog. And of course, there is the plague of the frogs. But I've just spoken of a couple of them here because in the plague of the darkness, Ra was the greatest Egyptian god, the sun god. And he supposedly was the creator of all of the other lesser gods. But now when the god of heaven, the true god, brought that plague of darkness that Ra was washed up. Also, the pharaohs believed that they were divine. The pharaohs believed that they were the sons of Ra, that they had this divine lineage. And so with the death of the firstborn, it struck home. There was nothing they could do. So we see that God destroyed those false, uh, those false gods that the Egyptians had been putting all of their hope, all of their trust in, it showed that the God who was, the God I am, is truly the only God that uh, any should have to do with. Well, we see also that Christ, Christ is seen in the book of Exodus. God delivers the nation and he lays down a new foundation. Now a new covenant comes in. And Christ is shown, remember, as the redeemer of God's chosen people. He is that lamb of God. And of course, that has an idea back to the Passover when Israel was ready to leave and to flee the land. And God had them prepare a lamb and sacrifice it. And the lamb's blood had to be placed on the lentils and on the top of the doorpost. And so that foreshadowed Christ. 
how the blood of Christ will cover us. And then the death angel, of course, passed over and went right over that house where the blood was applied. So we see Christ being shown in the book of Exodus as being the Lamb of God whose blood was shed so that death would pass over us. Well, we also have the formation of the chosen nation. <coughs> that nation that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> a nation that eventually God would rule as king and Messiah, that he would truly be their, be their king and they would recognize him. And so we see Christ very much in the book of Exodus. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we look at the tabernacle and some of those aspects. They all point to Christ. It's amazing how the Old Testament all has a focus. It all has the one thing that it points to, and it points us to Jesus Christ. Well, there are certain themes in the book of Exodus. And God wants us to understand as his people. He wants us to understand the deliverance is only in God's power. There is no other deliverance. There's no other means of salvation but through Jesus Christ. And Exodus reveals God's power, his compassionate love. And then we see the covenant because he has established now the Ten Commandments as well as all of the law. And we know that there's over 636 laws in the Old Testament, not just the Ten Commandments. But these basic principles of ethics, of morality, that deal with people's choice, that people deal with people's personal responsibility. And God covenant with his people, made an agreement with them, and they said, yes, you will be our God. And of course, there is the tabernacle. And the tabernacle represented God's presence. And while Israel was even coming out of the land. The Lord went before them in the pillar of fire and in the pillar of cloud at, during the day and at night. And so in that we see they could worship God in his holiness. They had a prescribed means of coming and being uh, able now to recognize that God had, was present among them. And then, of course, we have the theme of Moses. Moses is the mediator. He's the mediator between God and Israel. But this points us again to Jesus because Jesus is our mediator, the only mediator. Moses was just a type, a picture. We're going to look more about that as well. He's appointing us to see that, that Christ is the only means to the Father. Well, let's look at some outline, and you can see this outline is also in your notes. The outline of Exodus, as we look at it, it's just in four simple parts. We have the preparation for Israel's deliverance from bondage in chapters 1 through 4. And then we have the actual deliverance from bondage in chapters 5 through 18. How initially it's God preparing the hearts, and he, we see Pharaoh's heart hardened. We see the Egyptians standing hardened against Israel. And then we have how God graciously, wonderfully delivers Israel. Then, of course, in that, in chapters, between chapters 5 and 18, we have Pharaoh's resistance 
and the Lord's reassurance in chapters 5, beginning in chapter 1 through 6, 27. Then we have the beginning of the plagues on Egypt, the ten plagues. That begins in chapter 6, 28 through chapter 12, 36. Then we have the exodus from Egypt to Mount Sinai. That begins in chapter 12, as they've left now in verse 37, through chapter 18. Then, of course, we have now the third aspect, the covenant on Mount Sinai. When Moses goes up to that holy mountain, and there he is seeing God as such, as much as it could be, so much so that he's glowing himself, and he receives the tablets of the Ten Commandments. That's chapters 19 through 24. Then we have the layout for the tabernacle and how the tabernacle should be built and established and how Israel should worship. Those are, that's chapters 25 through 40 through the end of the book. Well, think about that because in that we have the instructions for how the tabernacle was constructed, all of its furnishings from chapters 25 through 31, then, of course, we divert a little bit. And because it's taken Moses so long, he's up on the mount, Israel builds a golden calf, and they start worshiping this golden calf and going after this idol, much like they had learned in Egypt. They go after this false idol. And, of course, as Moses comes down and sees them, he grinds it up, and they literally drink the gold water uh, with him because they said, you want a false god? Here, you, you just drink this. You take that. Well, there's consequences to our sin. So that was chapters 32 through 34. And then we have the actual construction of the tabernacle and the layout in chapters 35 through 40. That's the outline for the book. But I want us to think about, because in the book of Exodus, we have a special name of God, the name Yahweh or Jehovah. We don't really know the, the correct pronunciation. But in Exodus 3 and verse 14, Moses is at the burning bush and God tells him to go and tell the children of Israel, I am that I am hath sent me, hath sent you unto me. <laughs> and so, of course, in the New Testament, Jesus repeatedly said, I am. I am the way. I am the door to the sheep. I am. And in, in John chapter 8 and verse 58, when they're asking, who are you? Who do you say? Who is it? Who are you? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. The same, as he says it in Greek, ego I mean. It's the same meaning as what we have in Hebrew where he says, I am the self-existent one. And it shows Jesus' deity. Well, there are other names of God, but this is one that we see is recognized by the Jews as being very holy. The Jews won't, even to this day, pronounce the name. When it's being written, when they were the scribes would write it. They had a special pen. They would pick up a new quill and they would write it. It had new ink. 
it, everything with that was done very meticulously. And because it contained the name of God, if the scroll was old, then there was a certain ritual for burying it. It wasn't just destroyed, wasn't thrown out on the rubbish heap. There was a certain way and ritual that they would take care of it. And the Jews still practice that today. If the name of God is written in a book, then it's still going to be, uh, and, and the book is torn up, tattered. You can no longer use it. It's going to be buried in a certain special way. Well, there are many other names of God that we find in the Old Testament. Elohim, in the beginning, Elohim, Genesis 1 and verse 2. He is the creator. This is a plural name. In Hebrew, you have singular, you have dual, and then you have plural. So things that come in pairs, things that are in twos, eyes, shoes, things like that. That's the dual. But here the name is plural, Elohim. The three strong ones is the idea of that. The three that are recognized and seen at creation. And there's El Elyon. God is superior to all. God is mighty. God is uh, almighty is the idea of that. And that's found in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And of course, we have in Exodus 3, 14, what's called the Tetragrammaton. And it's called that because that just simply means a four-letter word. And it's said that because it is the, uh, the Y-H-W-H, uh, the Yahweh or Jehovah. I am the self-existent one. The Jews oftentimes would put the word Adonai and would replace the name Yahweh or Jehovah with Lord. Because that's what it meant. It meant the Lord, the master of creation, the owner of all. Sometimes they put the word Shema. Shema meant the name. Today, the Jews use the term Hashim. Hashim is the modern Hebrew word for the name. And so when they talk about God, they just say Hashim, the name. And, that, and everyone recognizes that they're talking about Jehovah God. Well, that comes from the book of Exodus. He is also known as El Shaddai, the sustainer of life in Genesis 17. Elohim, God in his eternity, God in his immenseness, God in his omnipotence. <coughs> Excuse me. Then there is El Rohe, God's omniscience, the God who sees, the God who cares. Genesis 16, 13. Well, we also have El Eliel Israel, the God of Israel. God is being caring for his people is the idea of that. That's in Genesis 33, 19 through 20. God's care for his people. And then we have Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yireh, God who sustains, the God who keeps you. That's in Genesis 22. And then we have Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And it carries the idea from 1 Samuel. He is the leader of the angelic army. He is the God of all of heaven. There is none higher. There is no one else. Well, let's come to some conclusions. Let's try to wrap all of this up. We've gone through so many different aspects, so many different things. Let's try to bring some of this 
into perspective. We see Moses as a type. Moses was the deliverer of Israel. So Jesus is the true deliverer. He is the Lamb of God unto the world. Before Israel had sacrifices for the individual, they had sacrifices for the priest. They had sacrifices for a, a tribe. There had never been a sacrifice for the whole world. There had been a sacrifice for their nation. But now the Lamb of God is the sacrifice for the whole world. And Jesus now is our high priest. He is our only access to the Father. There's no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law, not only the Ten Commandments, but all 636 laws, which no one has been able to meet all of those requirements. Because you see, when we are guilty of breaking one, we are lawbreakers. We've sinned. We've fallen short. The requirement is perfection, and none of us have been able to meet that. But Jesus fulfilled the law and lived the perfect life. Let's think about some of the symbolism of Jesus, especially in the Passover, because in the book of Exodus, we have the Passover and how Israel stood and they were ready and waiting and looking forward to God's deliverance. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And Israel once a year, the Jews still once a year remember Passover. But we as the children of God, we as Christians in the Lord's church, we remember the Lord's resurrection every week. Every Sunday we remember the resurrection. That's why we meet on the first day of the week to remember the resurrection. We remember his sacrificial death, but he rose. He overcame death. He overcame hell and sin. And that's why we meet on the first day. Every week we're being reminded of that. We see and we're reminded of the power of God to redeem week in and week out. Well, in this we also see God's power over Satan. We saw that Satan is a miracle worker. He is able to bring about certain Miracles. He was able to do certain things. We're going to find again in the end times, Satan works miracles. I think we're beginning to see times and things happening in our day and age where we're seeing an increase in demonic activity. Why? Because something is about to happen and we will again see Satan working great miracles. And that's, you can just be sure. As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation talks about that. And it relates back to the book of Exodus and how that, and how that is, uh, leads mankind astray. So God shows himself as superior to the false god. He shows himself as superior to all of the false religions. God's power over Satan. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is all in all. Well, let's think about God's covenant, the Ten Commandments and the tabernacle, because the law was given to be our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. We are now under a new covenant, the covenant of grace. And God's covenant in the tabernacle, it foreshadows Jesus 
Now, we're not going to have time tonight to go through. It's an extensive study when you look at the tabernacle. And all of that points to Christ in one aspect or another. But this was the prescribed plan for Israel's worship. But now in the New Covenant, we as members of the Lord's New Testament church, we recognize His presence because He said, now where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst. So we recognize he has promised to be with us. And he said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. We ought to have a great celebration. And there is wonderful symbolism in the Lord's New Testament church. The new covenant has been affirmed by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, but his resurrection as well from the tomb. So we look forward to taking the Lord's Supper with him anew, we look forward and we celebrate with baptism, the death, the burial, and resurrection. And that's what the man, a man's, a person's life who's been born again, that's what they show in the baptism. Well, today's ordinances have their roots in Exodus. For after the meal, Jesus got up and he took matzah bread. And he said that he was the bread of life. This, my body is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, in all of these aspects, in all of these areas, we see that God has shown himself magnificent and true. God has shown himself throughout the whole book of Exodus. We've taken this shotgun approach. We've looked at it so quickly and so uh, you know, just looking at the whole, there's so much in it. I hope that you get excited. I hope that you'll say, oh, I want to read again about that. I want to read about God's deliverance of his people. I want to read about God meeting with Moses and Moses glowing. I want to read again about the sorcerers and how God overcame or the plagues that you're just encouraged in the power and the might of God tonight. Because it is the same God, the same God that watched over Israel, the same God that took care in all of those aspects is the God that loves you, the God that loves me. He is the God that uh, has taken such amazing care in all of our in all aspects of our life that we could have eternal life. Do you have eternal life tonight? I hope that tonight you won't go to bed until you know that you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. This whole book is pointing us, it's leading us to Christ. I hope that if you don't get anything else, you see the great escape, Israel fleeing out of Egypt, fleeing from bondage. You see, that's what the Lord does in giving you eternal life. You were under bondage to sin, and now you've been freed, looking forward to the promised land. Yes, we're wandering, just as Israel wandered in the wilderness. We're wandering, but we're pilgrims, we're sojourners. We're on a path. We're on our way to the promised land, where we're going to have Christ as King, Christ as Messiah, and we will know Him and see Him. What wonderful. I hope that you have that hope today. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the message. 
if you want to hear Paul in person and are in the Stockton, California area, we invite you to join us at Landmark Missionary Baptist Church, 301 East Alpine Avenue. That's near the University of the Pacific. He brings the Bible message every Sunday at 11 a.m. and other times as listed. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions on this or other topics, please see our contact information in the description or email us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.